How can we fit more people into our cities without compromising livability? Or perhaps another way to phrase that question is what needs to change to make our cities livable for all citizens as our populations grow in an environment where we have a chronic shortage of dwellings and increasing homelessness? How do we approach a crisis when those not directly impacted by that crisis realise the enormity of it. Does this remind anybody of the climate crisis? How do we exit the age of nimbyism and bring on the yimbies? And what the hell is a yimby, I hear you say. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're discussing the future of our cities through a Sydney lens. Our guest is Eamon Waterford, the CEO of the urban policy think tank called the Committee for Sydney. And Eamon started his career working side by side with people experiencing long-term homelessness in Penrith and Blacktown to understand their challenges and undertook the first homelessless street count in the Western Parkland City. And then fast forward to not too long ago, as the Committee for Sydney's Policy Director, he delivered more than 40 reports, including work on density done well, benchmarking Sydney's performance and the Sandstone Mega Region, which we'll love to find out about that, and Safety After Dark. The reason we're talking to Eamon today is he's a self-confessed yimby. So he's obviously interested in the future of Sydney, um, but he is a yes-in-my-backyard uh, adherent. And we're keen to understand more about why and what that means. So welcome, Eamon. Uh, this is going to be a juicy chat and we're really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. Eamon, I read there a, uh, an article in the SMH. It was back in April and um Oh, it was really interesting. I think back then, you know, there was a real uh, conversation around rental stress, you know, housing affordability and prices are starting to increase, et cetera. Uh, but the conversation has gone in overdrive, right, around this housing. What does it really mean for our, our city? You know, what is this? And, and one of your key um, points in that article, I, I, it was like the headline was the housing crisis is our next COVID. And it kind of has this feel to it at the moment. You know, it's going back, you know, probably 2016, 2017. I remember it was a you know, is Sydney where I want to be long term? You know, everyone's getting disenfranchised out of the city again. And, um, you know, before we sort of go into a big detailed conversation around that, what's the sort of community of Sydney and, you know, what's your role? What do you guys do? You know, what's the plan, I guess? Yeah, so we're an urban policy think tank. Um, so we're looking at what the big challenges facing greater metropolitan Sydney are and how we can fix those problems. Um we are funded by members, mostly that's big um, uh, corporates and institutions from across the city. So we've got developers as members, we've got architecture firms, we've got universities, we've got local councils, we've got community housing providers, uh, we've got tech firms, we've got banks, we've got fintech sectors, um, uh, companies from the fintech sector. It's a real mixed bag, but basically it represents the diversity of this great city. Um, so we look at a lot of different issues facing Sydney. Obviously, housing is kind of the existential crisis we're facing now, but we talk about kind of six topics that we care about. They are planning and housing, transport and infrastructure, arts and culture and livability, uh, uh, climate and resilience, um, the future of the economy and then equity and fairness. And obviously that comes, you know, full circle back to that housing question. But basically, how do we make sure this is a city that keeps working for everybody and isn't just for, you know, the haves and not the have nots? So we are pretty lucky in that we get to have a job that lets us talk about almost anything um, that is facing Sydney because they all fit under one of those buckets, basically. Um, but we advocate to government. We talk to the community. We want to be, you know, helping have a proper public policy discussion about these issues. What I like about that, because all of those six areas, I think, relate to housing um, in, in one way or another, even arts, you know, and, and you're looking at sort of lifestyle. Well, when you're looking from a property lens, what makes an area desirable to live in, it's not just, oh, so I can commute to work easily. It's actually, what do I do when I'm not working? And that's 
a lot of that is arts and lifestyle. You know, what, what are the amenities you get in an area? Like that's just one example from the six that you, that you said there. Obviously the economy is important to housing as well. And the, um, how far you are away from where you work and how, how flourishing the area is. And then their safety that's tied into it. I mean, all of those six things are so intrinsically tied in with our housing or housing is intrinsically tied in with all those six areas. Why don't you could sort of chicken and the egg in a way. And I think, um, you know, Sydney's a great city. We live in Sydney, you know, don't want to talk Sydney down. But at the same time, a lot of people who live in Sydney and enjoy, um, you know, maybe that that coastal side of the city perhaps, you know, that get maybe a bit more of their fair share of amenity compared to others in the city, um, there is that sort of idea of protectionist sort of attitude and, you know, we don't want to host the the hordes that's, that <laughs> – <laughs> that are going to come into this city in our area, or maybe we can't, maybe there's not enough space. We really literally don't have enough space. So what are some of the, I guess, some of the, the high-level topics or high-level discussions that are being had around what needs to change? And do people, is it is this really a zero-sum game? Do people have to lose so that other people can live and enjoy living in this city? Mm. Well, the, the first thing to say in this space is let's dispel the myth that density is bad or that we don't enjoy dense places. You know, if you ask anybody, and, you, and I encourage you to, you know, when you're at a barbecue on a Saturday, ask people if they could live anywhere, where would they live in Sydney or in any city, really? 100%, you know, 100 times out of 100, people will pick somewhere that's pretty dense. It's full of people because that's life you know it's vibrant it's it's happening you know people don't want quiet dull boring suburban experiences they want rich cultural um complex nighttime daytime experiences and you need a lot of people to have those experiences so you know we actually all intrinsically like being around other people that's kind of human nature and density is the way that we achieve that in urban environments so when people say they don't like density, really what they're talking about is kind of all of the negative, you know, side effects of density. And yeah, we need to address those and, and recognize that those are um, challenges. But we need to start this discussion from saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, density is not a dirty word. It's a really good word. It actually means livability. It means lifestyle. It means amenity. It means opportunity. It means, you know, fairness um, when it's done well. And so then the debate shifts from do we want density or no density to, well, if we do, if we're going to have density, how do we do density well rather than density that's crap? And, you know, there's plenty of examples of crap density, right? Like we can all point to places that you look at and you say, geez, I wouldn't want to live there. But also, you know, no one's walking around Potts Point being like, oh, it's too dense around here. I don't like how dense Potts Point is. <laughs> no one's walk, no one's walking around Surrey Hills and saying, oh, I'd love it if it was a little bit less dense. Like they're saying, oh, there, there's action, there's vibrancy, there's open space, there's cafes, there's restaurants, there's people, it's fun. So we need to really start from that kind of inflection point of saying, like, actually, we're talking about the quality of density rather than the fundamental quanti quantum of density. Eatman, I guess, um, what's the issue with, you know, us just walking into, you know, just going a business as usual, right? Like, if Sydney doesn't, you know, make change, right, doesn't solve these issues, like, where have, where's it gone wrong in the past where cities have been a bit complacent, a little bit arrogant and said, look, everyone's just going to move to our city because we're the best in the world at whatever it is, but they haven't done infrastructure planning. They haven't um, done great planning around housing. And they've almost created this problem where people don't want to move to the city and then the economy suffers and it goes from one of the top cities to, is this sort of invisible, like not trying to put a doomsday scenario on it, but this is something where a social pressure of not solving these issues basically starts to, you know, our livability starts to really drop. Yeah. Oh, look, I'll put a doomsday scenario on it and I'll use a really good example for this, right? Um, we talk about San Francisco. We talk about, um, you know, Silicon Valley is like the home of the startup. It was for a period of time, the place to be. If you were a new company, if you were a startup, you Google, you were Apple, you wanted to be in Silicon Valley. Um, nobody wants to be there anymore. There are fewer startups happening in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco and the Bay Area than in places like Austin, Texas or Seattle or Vancouver because it's too expensive in San Francisco. You know, they only built 4,000, 6,000 homes a year at a time when we were building like 40 or 50,000 homes a year, a bit less than that, but, you know, like one-tenth of the housing we were building. And we, we would hear these stories, right, of like cleaners who had to get on a bus and spend three hours on a bus to go in and clean Google's headquarters and we think, geez, 
what a terrible American experience. But that is the reality of where Sydney is in its in its trajectory if we just k- kick along with business as usual. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we already do have cleaners who are spending, you know, three, four hours a day commuting. It's not a stretch to think, okay, if we priced cleaners out of the Sydney basin, they would be living in Newcastle. And all of a sudden, that's a five-hour commute every day. Um, and the reality is the city stops functioning very well if you don't have cleaners or you end up paying cleaners an enormous amount of money to make it worth their while. Neither is particularly productive. Neither is particularly fair. It's certainly kind of a bit morally bankrupt. Um, and it's, and it's definitely economically stupid. So it's, it's a big issue that we're facing and we're sort of, um, we're rolling straight into that. Do you think that's like a rot around that attraction for talent, right? Like, you know, if you uh, want to start a startup, one, it's about getting, you know, uh, workers that are in that place, but also you need to attract talent around the world because there's a skill shortage, right? So do you think that's where Australia might go, well, we're moving away from this manufacturing, you know, service-based economy. We need all these new startups and these new businesses. But ultimately, when they start to pitch around the world, people say, hey, I'm not going to leave, you know, uh, Singapore because I've got lower tax rates. I can still get housing. I can, there's great employment opportunity, but I can't get any of that in Australia because I can't find a house and it's too expensive. And is this, the, is this like a five years time where we, we, you know, we, we basically stifle innovation, A, because house prices are too expensive and no one t- starts a business anyway. And then B, no one can get talent because housing is too expensive. Exactly. So there's, there's, this challenge that Sydney has always suffered from because Sydney's always been an expensive city, right? You know, wages are high. House prices have always been pretty high, but the, but we've been on this sort of balancing act where price is here, high cost, but attractiveness is up here. You know, Sydney is a beautiful city. It is a fun city. And look, it wasn't very fun for a little while, but it's fun again. Um, it's, you know, a vibrant city. It's a diverse city. It's a safe city. There's a lot to love about Sydney. So that equation's always been worth it, right? And that, that bit in between these two points, that's the talent attraction, you know, differential. Um, Prices are going up. Attractiveness isn't keeping pace at the moment, right? So all of a sudden we're getting to a point where we'll hit a tipping point and it's not going to be worth it. Now, Singapore, yes, you can make a lot more money in Singapore right now than if you live in Sydney. House prices, well, you can't buy a house if you're not a a local, but um, you can rent for a relatively decent price. Yes, tax rates are low. Singapore's not as fun as Sydney, but at a certain point, you know, fun won't be worth it. For the cost, right? And, and the risk is that that's, that's the differential that we're going to hit. And so once you hit that tipping point, your reputation gets trashed and it becomes really hard to come back from that. And we see that with other expensive cities around the world where they sort of become, you know, homes of, of like wealthy and they, they lose that grittiness, they lose that edginess. And that's actually what is attracting talent is a little bit of culture, a little bit of vibrancy, a little bit of danger, just a little bit of danger. You lose all of that. And then people are like, look, you're, you're Vienna, you're boring, you know, sure, beautiful galleries. I'm sure like very austere buildings, but I don't want to live in Vienna. Like I want to live somewhere cool and fun. Is that the issue with that? Um, the lockout laws and the, you know, the killing of our nightlife, like how short-sightedness that was. Um, and even, you know, I guess if you talk about Melbourne, like, you know, how extreme the lockdowns were and, you know, how that reputation went around the world, like that really took the edge off, off the coolness of these cities and, and, you know, how hard it's to get it back once you've lost it. Yeah, like we really rely on our reputation because we're at the other end of a really long international flight from most of the world, right? Like we can't just rely on people stumbling across us like Barcelona can. Um, and we can't just rely on, you know, intrastate um, travel like America can. You know, people have to be pretty intentional about coming to Australia because it's a long way away. Um, although we're getting closer because obviously, you know, Asian century, increasingly we are actually in the right time zone, but we're still a long way away even from North Asia, right? So, um, that reputation runs a long way before people actually have a lived experience of this city. And so, you know, the lockout laws sucked. They weren't great. Um, and they definitely um, damaged our reputation. Now, there was still fun to be had in Sydney, but because it became this all-consuming kind of reputational ch- shift that Sydney was boring, it had, you know, a, an outsized impact on our um on our brand, on our reputation. And Melbourne's had the same, look, WA's had the same, right? With the lockdowns, you know, that they had over COVID. You know, you hear now people, it's interesting, I was chatting to my counterpart in Perth and she was saying, we try and attract talent from the East Coast and people say to say to us, we don't want to move to Perth because we don't want to get stuck there. 
you know, and the reality is like, yeah, you probably probably get back. But that's like that reputational fear exists long after all the lockouts have finished, right? So it is actually like we've got to really foster and be considerate of our reputation on the international stage because being an attractive city, and I don't just mean attractive like good looking, I mean attractive like we attract things. We're a magnet for talent, for money, for people, for ideas. That's the only way Sydney is ever successful. So we have a a housing crisis across the country and we started talking about this we started noticing this i should say in 2020 and it was the a shortage of rental stock and that was driven by a lot of expats returning home taking up their homes that they had previously rented out and it's sort of this little trickle knock-on effect people were needing more rooms because they're working from home all that sort of stuff so we started so now we're three years down the track and what started as a, oh, God, it's really hard to find a rental um, everywhere has become, oh, my God, we're a million houses short from what we need. We need short-term, res- you know, responses here. This, you know, the federal government's uh, legislation that's stalled at the moment. Maybe it, maybe it may not be stalled by the time we go to where, but, you know, they're trying to create a future fund and all this sort of palaver. All this stuff is not short-term. It's not going to have an immediate impact, right? In Sydney, we've got, we've starting, you know, what? Uh, last night at Q&A, so we can date this, we were recording this early June, there was a, an episode that was filmed in Newcastle and they talked about in Newcastle, you know, there's there's um, people living in, in cars, families living in cars. We've talked about this on this podcast before that this is in certain regional areas, this, this sort of thing is happening. I understand it's happening in Sydney too now. We are not a third world country, right? It, it, yet we have situations in this country where two where both parents could have a job and we've got families with kids not having a house, not having a place to call home. This is not good for society. And so we've, we've got some serious issues here and this has to be addressed, you know, promptly. Um, but then that's not, you know, if you're thinking about the future of a city, you know, you've got to think of the knock-on effect of how, how, how do we immediately create homes or housing then long term, what are the things that we need to do? And I know that there are, you know, the count, there was an article in the Herald only last week about, you know, I think it was Mossman and Wallara Council saying that, you know, we're full, we don't have any more land. And I get that too. I mean, in established areas where they're, they're already dense, you know, there's not a much, there's not much give and not much extra space potentially. But then you've got, shopping strips with with retail stores um sitting vacant so there these are places with roofs and walls and you know presumably plumbing so so what are some of the things that can be done do you think short term but also some of the more i guess structural changes that we need in terms of our thinking you know to move away from that nimbyism into yimbyism um you know what are some solutions that can really turn the dial yeah well, th- this is the ten billion dollar question, right? So um, let me let me. I know. Uh, I love asking me, easy ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me let me take a couple of chunks of that. Right. Let's start with the um, the long term stuff because the long term one is actually the easiest to answer, which is we need a lot more houses. Like at a very basic level, we've got probably a hundred and fifty thousand fewer homes than we need, and we need those built and more because the population is growing. So we've got to build like maybe double the number of houses a year that we've been building in Sydney to this point. Um, and we've got to start now and we probably don't stop for a really, really long time, like decades. So we've got to have a step change that starts now. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but this is all in, in an environment where we've been having declining approvals and, and commencements. Right. So we're going in the wrong direction here, right? Yeah, oh, we, we're absolutely, and, and costs are rising. You know, we've, we've got global supply chain challenges, which mean not only is it harder to get an approval because the planning system is very slow in New South Wales. Once you get that approval, it costs more to build and, you know, timelines blow out as a result of cost blowouts and, and, and talent shortages and all of these things. So, it's, you know, if you were starting from somewhere, you wouldn't start from here, but here we are. This is the situation that we're in. So we've got to do quite a lot. It's not just double the amount of effort, you know, because we've been picking the low-hanging fruit to get the 32, 35, 40,000 homes a year. The next 40 are going to be much harder than the next 30, whatever. It's going to be harder. So it's actually not a redoubling of efforts. It's a re-quadrupling of effort to achieve that long-term supply. So that's the long-term game is we've got to build a lot more. Now, I would argue that not only do we have to be building a lot of housing, but we also need to be allocating a portion of that housing directly to 
low-income families, um, social and affordable housing. And by that, I mean, like, some of it is social for really vulnerable people. So, yes, it is the um, the parents, single parents with kids who are otherwise going to be exposed to homelessness. Um, some of it is sort of low to middle-income families. Like, basically, at the moment, the, ma- the market in Sydney is so rough that, you know, nurses, teachers, cops, cleaners can't afford to live in this city. We probably need to be actually de- designating and allocating affordable housing for key workers to ensure that we never lose the chance to do this. A really good example of what happens when this doesn't get done is uh, there's an aged care facility on the northern beaches that recently got closed because they couldn't get staff to go and work in that facility. Now, there are aged people on the northern beaches. There are just nobody who can afford to, to be an aged care worker and live on the beaches. So, you know, I don't think supply alone will solve for that problem. You actually probably need to be thinking, all right, when we build a retirement home, we also need to build housing next door to it. That is for the people who will work in that retirement home or similar. So that's like the long-term game is just like hard, but obvious. It's we got to build a lot, heaps of it everywhere. So I just, when you were talking about the aged care um, home and, and I do recall that um, and I'm thinking, my God, that's just insane, isn't it? it? Mining towns do this really well. They build dongers for the workers, you know. <laughs> do we have to build dongers in, in, in aged care facilities, you know, next to hospitals, you know, next to schools? Do we have to build dongers, you know, to our... <laughs> Kent Lardner, who's our sort of our resident property geek, you know, he talks about the building of Nissan huts. You know, do we have to do that? Is that something that we have to address? But anyway, keep going. I think no. maybe we do. Well, yeah, we've got to be thinking very clever about the short term solutions because, like, we're in a very um, acute experience right now that has been caused by all of this backlog of undersupply, but also obviously interest rates, inflation, global supply chain challenges. COVID, migration, you know, these are big problems that are not going to be solved anytime, certainly not by Sydney alone. So let's just say, let's just bank them in. We'll say, right, we know the interest rate environment sucks for housing affordability, but it is what it is. We've got to work from that. So that's the big long term. The short term is more complex, but probably a bit easier. There are some things we could be doing. So we can make renting a lot um, more secure. You know, at the moment, being a renter is not a great experience in Sydney, like historically and also globally. Sydney doesn't have great rental ledge when it comes to sort of protections for tenants compared to other jurisdictions around the world. We could make that better. And indeed, the, the state government has said they want to do some stuff around like no grounds evictions, technical stuff that'll help. So we could make renting, that would be, you know, 30% of the population rent. That'd be like a quite an immediate and sort of broad effect to do that. Um, that'd be one piece. Uh, we also then could be thinking, yeah, really cleverly and tactically about um, interventions we could make to create homes right now that maybe aren't going to be homes forever. So we, whether it's Nissan huts, whether it's like conversion of, yeah, um, you know, high street retail or like the, the apartments above it, whether it's, you know, thinking differently about some of the underutilized commercial real estate that we've got in this city that could potentially in certain circumstances be converted into residential, uh, whether it's just looking at sort of lazy assets, like there are a lot of, you know, uh, surface, surface sort of like, um, ground plane parking lots in Sydney, right? Typically next to train stations. Let's put parking in that. Let's put two levels of parking in that. And then let's put seven floors of housing on top of it. You know, that is a lazy asset where you can actually be delivering more parking, but also more housing in the same, same go. So these are, um, you know, tactical and like when we're talking about the scale of need being like tens of thousands of homes, none of these things alone is going to solve for it. But I suspect the short term solution to some of this stuff is going to be, you know, hundreds of little things like this, all kind of keeping us going for long enough that the supply can start to catch up. And do you think there's like actually the capacity to to build this amount? Like ultimately, um, we'd love to to double our, you know, capacity of building 40, 50,000 to 100,000 in New South Wales. But has the developers got enough materials? Have they got enough labour? Is there enough uh, capital? Is there enough buyers, you know, to to sort of fund all this? You know, is it, you know, or are we just going to be growing at market demand? And, and we is it so hard to move the needle that far? And are we better, like you say, to look at short term, you know, alongside this to go, well, yeah, maybe we can go from 40 to 60, but that's also optimistic. What we need to be doing is looking at other options, like you say, uh, because it's just unrealistic for us to be able to play catch up this fast. Right. 
Um, that's a really good point. And the reality is, if we just stick with the markets we currently have, probably there isn't the, the demand for the for the developers to actually dive into this in the scale that we need them to, which is why we need to create new markets, right? So one market would be the government could pay developers to build a bunch of social housing that the government then owns or a community housing provider, that sort of thing. So there's a whole separate market that actually wouldn't really, um, yes, it would compete for supplies, for, for materials and for talent, but it wouldn't wouldn't compete in terms of price. Um, build to rent is another really great, you know, promising example, right? Like there is a whole other product with a different market if it's institutional owners renting the product rather than trying to sell it onto the market. Because this is inherently one of the challenges that we've had is by only having sort of build to sell as the only kind of market going for housing, there is an inherent challenge where for a developer who's paid X amount for the land based on X sales or X plus sales price, um, if that price starts to drop, there's a real tension for them because they won't get the sales price that actually was banked in when they bought the land in the very first place. And so there's this difficulty they often are set with, which is either maybe we need to postpone this, um, you know, the sale of this product until we can get that price we asked for. I'm using this a lot to sort of describe my ideas, but you know, this, this idea of like actually. If you're watching the video, you'll watch. Eamon's hands. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm using my hands to just. <laughs> We've got a bit of a delay here, but. Down. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so watch the video if you're wondering what he's doing with his hands. Uh, it's on YouTube. Sorry to interrupt you there. I mean, the other thing too, we've got, we've got situations where builders going broke, right? And I get that that doesn't necessarily impact the total labor pool because, you know, subbies and, and employees will get jobs elsewhere. But it does mean that there's less businesses that have the capacity or capability of building as well. So we've got another sort of problem fitting into the system, right? Yeah, totally. And so I think a good analogy for this would be to look at our infrastructure capacity, like a transport infrastructure capacity that we had in Sydney. You know, 10 years ago, we'd built one train line in a decade. So there was very little, you know, institutional talent or capacity to build a train line, let alone like tunnels and complex road projects and these sorts of things, right? But because the government made it a very clear objective and they said there's going to be this pipeline of work over the next decade, it's $20 billion a year, it's going to be big amounts, but you can invest, you can be confident that you can hire a 100 new people because you know there's going to be enough work for you going forward. That actually, it was market creating, right? It actually created the capacity, the talent, the supply chain investments that were required in order to make these sorts of things cost effective for Sydney to do. So a similar approach to housing, I think, is probably what's needed. You need a government to say, we have a a commitment to building 60,000, let's say, homes a year for the next 10 years. So if you want to get into the business of helping build 600,000 homes, come to Sydney now, bring your talent in, attract them in because you know they're going to have a job for a period of time. So that kind of infrastructure um, footing, rather than treating this like just something that the market will sort of ebb and flow on, is it is, is in a sense the way we need to approach this. Because it is, it's like COVID or like climate, right? This is a crisis of a scale where government and the private sector are going to have to work hand in glove to make it happen. So, Eva, what's your thoughts on, you know, the hard axe coming down basically and saying, look, ultimately, if we wanted to encourage more build to sell, right, because it's hard to do the build to rent, it's hard to do the social housing on scale. Ultimately, we need buyers to enter the market, right, to to be funding this is the the mum and dad investor or the, the first home buyer um, or the downsizer or the you know, the upgrader, right, who's in an apartment that wants something bigger. But what they really want is, you know, a quality asset, right? And what their currently options are are high density in areas where maybe they don't want to live, right? But if you, for example, literally did just smash the axe down on, you know, these areas where we haven't built, you know, lower North Shore, inner west, eastern suburbs, beaches, and you literally just change zoning and you, and you literally said, look, developers can now build xyz in these areas and because they're so desirable those locations the the developers would go to those locations because the margins there they they've got a product that's still scarce and they can sell them at premium prices because their 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 buyer pool is quite premium do you think that that would be enough to create a building boom which would basically ignite this this shortfall and ultimately be great for our city because you'd be creating more housing stock in you know, inner city or inner locations, which are more sustainable, you know, better for, we've got already got infrastructure in these locations. So we haven't got to build new trains or planes or whatever it is, right? So 
it makes sense. Uh, but what's your re- what's the appetite for doing something like that? Are we are we still another crisis away? Like, are we in ten years' time? Are they going to go look? We've you know the the baby boomer generation's all dying out, right? And they've they've had their flag in the the sand. Um, and the Gen Xs are now saying, you know what, it's not fair for my kids because they can't buy, you know, like with climate change, right? We don't see it till it's on our doorstep. So, um, yeah, what's your thoughts? I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first-home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. So that's the that's like a big chunk of the answer, right? We did some research on, you know, we would call it stationary development or transit-oriented development. You can get about 50% of the, the actual amount of housing that Sydney needs within walking distance of train stations because we've got a pretty good train network. We've got 350 train stations, and a lot of those train stations are really close to jobs. The, the north You talked about the North Shore, eastern suburbs, inner west, um, southwest, the, the, the inner southwest. These places are, like, really close. You know, I live in Torella. It's a 20-minute train drive train ride i should say into the city um and it's like single story low rise you know r1 zoned residential like it's criminal that i get away with a 600 square meter block two minutes walk from a train station 20 minutes from the city like that's not fair that i get that and actually it would be far better for that to be terraced or yeah probably a couple of stories of apartments for something that proximate and you would actually end up with a much better experience living in that community like you know there are no shops in torella for example like i wish i had a supermarket i wish i had a couple of good cafes i don't have that stuff because there's not enough people living there and i'd get that if there were more people so we do need to be putting housing close to where people want to live and that's like close to connectivity, close to amenity, like open space and cafes and the like, close to high streets. Um, There are lots of locations where we've basically just bottled the debate with the community. We've not done a very good job of actually selling them on the the opportunity of densification. And so we've let it be lower rise than it should be. At the same time, like we've made it someone else's problem, right? Like if you live on the outskirts of Sydney and, you know, sprawl, urban sprawl, you've got to drive a long way. And that's pretty unsustainable and it's hot and it's really carbon intensive. Like this is a, you know, we have basically externalized all of the social problems that come with, you know, punting people to the margins of our society. Um, and we all have a bit of a responsibility to bring those people back in. Anyway, what's your thoughts on this? Um, like one of the best things for housing affordability, I thought, which I'm not sure on, I'm still going back the other way a little bit, is this sort of work from home movement, right? Like because. You know, if you don't need to commute, um, then you can look at further. You can look further away from the train lines, right? There's better for the environment. You know, there's lots of things, right? But then Cash 22, if you work from home, you do need more space. So your housing needs are higher, right? You don't just need a bed and a, a little kitchen. You need somewhere to have a desk. And, you know, um, especially if you're sharing with people, you might need multiple rooms. So, you know, what's your thoughts on this? Because there's a real pushback to the office, right? And, you know, you can see all the uh, – and so – is this something where we we need as a city we need to almost go back to what's best for sydney is a flexible hybrid and we should be designing for that world and encouraging companies to go down that way rather than what seems to be happening is get back to the office because that's better for our commercial towers and for our cafes but i reckon um sorry before you answer there i reckon the hybrid is actually more of a problem because the hybrid means that you need your bigger house and you still need to be close to transport because, you know, you don't really want to do – sure, you might only have to do your commute two days a week, but you know what? If you can afford a shorter commute, you're going you're gonna to go and push prices up closer to an area um, where you get easy access to, to the working hubs and also you get your extra room because you've got to work from home the other three days in a week. So I actually think that work, work from home or that hybrid work from home is actually one of the contributors to the problem, but that's my theory. Yeah. Look <laughs> – 
It is. The reality, I suspect, is we're probably never going to get rid of hybrid. Like hybrid is kind of the way forward. You know, there are huge amounts of benefit that we derive from being around other people and the productivity, collaborative kind of outcomes you get from bouncing ideas off people that can only happen in person. So like the office is a thing that's important. But clearly, there's a whole bunch of types of work that we do where it's deep thinking. It's like uninterrupted time that are just better from home. So, like, from a productivity perspective, hybrid is really productive, I suspect. Now, I think one, there'll be a couple of interesting things we're going to see. We used to, um, in urban policy, we used to th- have this thing called the Marchetti constant, which was like a, a rough estimate of how long people would commute. And we used to say oh, it was 30 minutes each way um, a day, that people would basically put up with about an hour's commute a day. And if their commute was longer than that, they reported, you know, much lower levels of like life satisfaction. And if it was lower than that, then they would tend to move further out to get more space to hit that 30 minute mark. I think what actually we were measuring was a five hour a week Marchetti constant rather than a one hour a day constant. So what I suspect will happen is if people are coming into the office, say two days a week, all of a sudden they might be okay with a two and a half hour a day commute for those two days if their commute on the other three days is zero hours. And actually, we might see some reshaping where people will be like, you know what? I don't mind living on the Southern Highlands and commuting a couple of days into the Sydney CBD because I only do it two days a week. And actually, for the other three days, I get to look out on a beautiful vista and I have my space and my sheep or whatever it is that you have in the Southern Highlands. But that's sort of what we've been experiencing. And that's certainly been sort of our view of how people would rationalize this but is it working that way is it a theory or is it is it proving to be you know the case so um what i would say is sydney's more polycentric than other cities um around the australia and around the world in that we've got multiple centers like Parramatta, macquarie park liverpool uh, whereas like melbourne's got one and that everybody's kind of trying to all shove into the single place so that helps a little bit with the idea that you can work from home but then also be commuting into a closer center every now and then um one data point i would i would note during covid um Campos Coffee reported sales basically remained flat the whole time. They said, you know what? We're actually selling as much coffee as we always, already, always did. The difference is we're selling less coffee in the Sydney CBD and we're selling more coffee to, you know, suburban and, 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 um, you know, town centre cafes because people are still going out to buy a coffee. They're just buying it from slightly different places. Um, so, you know, that, like if, if the caffeine intake of people stays the same, that suggests that people are working as hard. They're as productive. They're just slightly different. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's you're right. Like as Melbourne's trying to do that multi, you know, hub model, right? Like you come into the the local shops one or two days a week for your work, maybe you go to the city, you know, one or two times a week. Cause I think, you know, may, maybe that's, you know, practically for the environment as well. Like we've got a housing problem, but what are some of the other issues that even if we solved our housing, Sydney's got other issues that, you know, are brewing in the background that, you know, are going to uh, yeah catch us out if we don't start making plans around them as well. Maybe it's infrastructure. What, what are some other issues? Well, I mean, th- this is the other $10 billion question, right? Um, okay. Uh, we're very sprawled. We're very low density as a city. Um, you know, we are like the same population as as some global cities on about the third, at uh, three times the, the footprint. Um, so we get in our cars way more often than we should. We should be able to walk, cycle and catch buses and trains much more often than we can. So we've got a big mode share challenge where we've got to shift people out of their cars into other forms of transport. Um, you know, kids, kids don't walk to school and not to get sort of back in my day, because obviously it wasn't back in my day. I've only got a kid in year one, but like, you know, kids should be able to walk to school and they don't anymore. Um, so mode and, and transport's a big one. Um, Climate is going to be a big challenge for us. We are beset by beautiful natural, um, you know, uh, spaces all around our city, but they have a tendency to flood, get on fire, and then, you know, wash into the ocean. Um, so we are beset by almost every type of natural disaster that will get worse as a result of climate change. And so we've got to get more resilient to climate change. Um, we've got to deal with heat better. We've got to deal with flooding better. We've got to deal with, you know, sea level rises better um, than we do. Uh, and then, like, I think we've got our fun back. My sense is, you know, there was that period during the lockout laws when Sydney was boring. Um, but, like, we just had World Pride at the beginning of this year. And the best party in the world was happening in Sydney during World Pride, right? Like, there was a two-week period where you wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world but Sydney. So, 
more to do in that space. 100%, we're not there yet, but I would say that's one area where, like, I'm not as existentially worried. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Pride was so good. It just reminded me of the Olympics, actually. It's Sydney came to life. Um, and so it shows what we're capable of, but we all have short memories and then we forget and we go back to our sort of bury heads in the sand and just get on with it and be a bit miserable about other people making noise in our vicinity. So, um, you know, with this, back to sort of the yimbyism, nimbyism, all that sort of thing and, and, and where to bring people into um, into Sydney as as a big city. We, we also have movement around Sydney is curtailed by our rivers. You know, there's a thing there's a bridge thing in Sydney, you know, I don't live on this side of the bridge or that side of the bridge or whatever. And then you've got roads within that, but, but we do have some geographical constraints, but I often, one of the um, councils that is often held up to be, oh, this is the bastion of, of NIMBYism is Mossman. Right. And you look over there and, and I look at that and I think, you know, I, I'd probably be the same. The, the roads over there are choked Yes, it's a very expensive place to live, you know, when people have lovely homes on big blocks of land predominantly. It's not a huge amount of apartments compared to other uh, suburbs, so you could argue it's not as dense, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is that they're not well serviced by public transport. You know, they're relying on buses and um, you, and there's not a lot of, you know, greenfield sites, you know, ready to be uh, redeveloped as uh, apartments or as, you know, medium medium to high density living. So I get that there's a, a plan in place that sort of puts certain certain targets on different councils and all the rest of it, but it's interesting that that and Wallara Council, for instance, are obviously, you know, held up as being examples of the worst or the worst examples of nimbyism. And sometimes I feel that those accusations are unfair and other times I think they're totally justified. And so I guess, you know, if you're looking at it from a policy or from a, from a, a bigger picture thing and you're looking at the whole of Sydney, I mean, where should the density go? And and look, cleaners need to find somewhere to live too, and baristas and teachers and ambulance drive, drive all the rest of it, right? They they need to be able to live amongst us all, right, for our own good as well as theirs. Um, what are some of the, you know, I mean, th th this big argument that everybody should be, all the buildings should be going out west, you know, and I don't believe that that's necessarily the solution either. From a bigger picture perspective in terms of where we're going to fit in, where is the ideal, you know, how are we going to fit them in? Where are the people going to live? You know, how is it going to be spread? And, you know, from a from an idealistic um, point of view, because I'm, I'm presuming that there's you've got to come from an idealistic point of view first, right? How, what's the solution? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> there's a few things that I would say. Um, I mean, Mossman Council, I think, is a bit nimby. Um, I mean, you could point to things like them refusing to have a Woolworths in Mossman as an example. Yep. Like, I, there's, you know, yes. that is that is that is just pure, like, you know, um, nimbyism. It's sort of like we, accept, we understand that people want to buy food, but not in my backyard. Like, come on. Um, you know, I, I think we need to step away from sort of being too fixated on like east versus west or buses versus trains and just kind of get back to first principles on some of this stuff. Ideally, you want as many people to be living in places where they have close, proximate access to good things that make a good life. So then if you start from kind of that basically say, all right, well, what do we mean by good things? Well, we mean jobs, we mean schools, we mean hospitals, we mean doctor surgeries, shopping centres, these sort of things. And then what do we mean by close? Well, we mean, you know, the ability for them to probably walk or catch public transport to something within half an hour, let's say, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. So if you look at those parameters, you'd say that Mossman actually is one of those places, right? Like, yes, they've only got buses, but the B-line will get you into the city within 30 minutes. So that ticks that box. Conversely, Campbelltown doesn't tick that box if if you're trying to get people into the Sydney CBD. Now, Campbelltown's got a lot of amenity in and of itself, so maybe that's your, your, your centre rather than the Sydney CBD. But we need to be sort of saying, well, let's all start from a basis of first principles and then everybody takes, you know, what they can, they can um, withstand within those reasonable sort of first principles. The other thing that I think it's important to remind people when they say, oh, I don't want this sort of stuff in my local community is you're pricing out 
your kids. You're pricing out your grandkids. You're pricing out the people who will look after you if you end up in an aged care facility. You're pricing out baristas. You're pricing out cleaners. You're pricing out artists and cultural people and bartenders. And actually, you probably want all of those things because they're what make a good life. When we talk about being proximate to things that make for a good life, they do include bars and cafes and, you know, clean streets. So, like, we also need to recognise that sometimes in trying to lock in, in you know, plexiglass or sort of say, like, no, we're full, well, let's lock this off, what you're actually doing is locking yourself off from the experience of a good life. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> 100% agree. You won't get an argument from here. But it is, it's just that, you know, the, the conversation, um, you know, you talked before about governments, it needs to be collaborative. You know, governments, community, housing providers, developers, you know, all the players in, in, in this need to collaborate. But the governments are the only ones worried about getting elected, re-elected. You know, nobody else is. They've got their other agendas. You know, there are other reasons for being in the in the mix there. But, but you know, so they're not worried so much other than they've got a marketplace they want to sell to, presumably, and, you know, depending on what, what they are. But, you know, they've got a, a pe- appeal to that. But, but governments are worried about being elected. And so that does, in by virtue of its of our election cycle, shorten our, our horizon in terms of our um, these, uh, you know, policy decisions and you know, direction of um, our planning laws, really. Yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and here we are. And we have a crisis and we're talking about it, you know, because that's basically what this all is, giant talk fest. You know, we're not doing anything con- constructive about it, are we? Um, at the end of the day, I mean, like, and and – there's lots and lots of hot air about it. We have been talking about this and, and as an issue for some time, actually, even before COVID, um, homelessness and and the the unfairness and the gap widening, all those sort of things. These are issues that we've been talking about for a long time. What is it going to take for some positive action here? You know, I mentioned earlier in the intro that that this is a crisis that unless you are personally impacted by it, unless you're you're the boomer in the comfy suburb and your kid can't buy a home. All of a sudden, then it affects you. But until it affects you like that, you just think, I don't understand what the problem is. You know, so how are we ever going to get to the point where we, where the, there's a tipping point where actually we're going to do something now? You know? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like, I think there's a couple of thoughts. I think we have a government right now that is actually like the state government, the New South Wales government, that is, that is positive on this, right? They say they want to do something about that. I think that's really good because, you know, there was a lot of good things the last government did under Berejiklian and Perrottet and o- O'Farrell. But one area where I think they categorically did not deliver was on housing. You know, it's pretty clear that they didn't care that much about low income people. They didn't, they didn't really increase or invest in social housing and the like. So there's gaps there, right? Um, so I think that's really positive. We've got a government that wants to do this, but it's also important for us to remember that this is like not going to be solved overnight. And so, you know, even if we get to the end of this four-year um, electoral cycle and we're going to vote, like, regardless of how good a job they do, house prices are still going to be expensive in Sydney. So if we judge them purely off that, there's no way they're going to be able to solve for that. So we've got to well, remember that this- I'd be disappointed if they weren't because I'm a homeowner. Yeah, 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 yeah. I but mean, I do yeah. want people to all have a home. Well, that's very good. Yeah, of, I'm good, conflicted good on too. You, good on you. See, yeah, <laughs> this is the fact of it. Let's let's get this out there. As soon as you're on the property in the property market, you don't want prices to fall, but you do want other people to have an opportunity to get in. You do want people to be able to afford to rent. You know what I mean? Like, so it's it's like how do we rash? How do we actually balance all this stuff out? Well, this is this is where these alternative types of housing come in. To play, right? Like, you, it doesn't have to affect your property values for us to build a bunch of social housing. It doesn't have to affect your property values for build to rent to be invested in because they're not being priced against you and there's no sort of market that you're competing in in that space, right? Because this is one of the challenges is when we talk about, oh, well, we want to increase supply because that'll reduce prices, but we don't actually want lower prices because we've, we've, you know, we've embedded a lot of national wealth in pri- house prices, right? Yes, so this have. is, this is why saying, well, all right, well, if we, if the outcome we want is lots of housing and we don't really really want to mess with prices too much well then let's build a bunch of houses that don't affect price that's that's the trick with this it's like build all this other housing that delivers homes for people that give them a secure good life in a good place but don't have to sort of fundamentally affect people's ability to retire but but you also need to get the uh the people to do it rather than the government right i mean you said that 
the last government, for example, you know, didn't invest in housing policies for, you know, social housing, et cetera, et cetera. But they did go on a massive infrastructure boom, right, uh, and spending, right? So the debt that we've created then, can we just rely on the government to solve these issues or do we need to then just let the market solve these issues by making incentives to them, right, encouraging developers and cutting taxes and, you know, zoning? And, and, and so it's almost like, well... We can't solve this, but we can make it much easier for you to to make this profitable, and we'll give you the the right tools and the um yeah and, and the story because I think you're right. The stories, if we we say, look, this is big picture Sydney over the next ten years. This is what we're doing. We're not backing down. Bipartisan agreement on that. Um, and we're going to and is it that long term vision that I just don't think's there, right? Like you know, you've got this like Sydney needs to go up to build more housing. That's been in the news for the last month, right? But is it more than that, right? Sydney needs to go up. Sydney needs, needs to go out. Sydney needs to go, you know, mega Sydney. Do we go to Newcastle to Wollongong? Like, there's lots of solutions here, but there's no real overarching housing rental affordability plan that, you know, that we're running off. Yeah. Oh, look, you're right. I mean, government has no money, right? So they're not going to be building the housing. Their role will be to create the enabling environment for the private sector to deliver this housing. That the, the cheapest and biggest lever they have is zoning. You know, they could just say all this, all these um, places, all these sites, you can put an extra five stories on it and whiz bang wow. All of a sudden, feasibility is like totally amazing. And a bunch of property developers will absolutely be able to find capital and talent to build those houses, right? Because that, and that was free. That didn't cost government anything to do that rezoning other than definitely some political capital because the neighbours will hate it. But like from a from a budget bottom line, right? They, that's free. So they sh- that, the, the, the role that government will play will be as an enabler, not as a deliverer in and of themselves. Um, and I mean, unless we're then getting into the conversation about building high-speed rail up to Newcastle and down to Wollongong, which I love, that's when you mentioned the sandstone mega region at the beginning, that's our vision for the sandstone mega region is the Newcastle, Central Coast, Sydney, Wollongong mega region. But you need, you need a lot of government money to build that high-speed rail line. So that would be where I'd want them to be putting their money. I'm glad you reminded us of that because I did mention that and I thought I wanted to know what that was. So that's the sandstone mega region is basically defined by our basin, uh, are you the, the rock that yeah, we're the, all sitting on it's at the moment. sandstone, right. exactly that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The problem <laughs> with that is that, you know, Newcastle's like, well, Central Coast is water everywhere, right, and national parks. So you're going to either, you know, take a natural uh, wildlife hit, right, like to convert that. There's not much more housing, I reckon, there. Like, it's, it's a bit more, right? But And then Newcastle, you know, where people really want to be, Newcastle's also around sort of Merriweather and Newcastle Beach, and then you've got, like, Stockton on the other side of the water, and it's it's quite landlocked. And then Wollongong, right? You've got the massive escarpment, and, you know, then you've got this, you know, Albion Park region where, but, you know, you'd have to build the train right all the way down there. So, you know, it's not like we've got, like, three Melbournes, right? We're just these big, flat you know, uh, vast land that we could build out. Do you reckon that's going to be one of our issues is that even when you add that training, like we're going to have a very quickly, those areas will be running out of housing anyway. Uh, well, let's let first first thing. Sydney's Sydney's geographic size is about the same as Tokyo's, and Tokyo's got twenty five million people. So, like space space is something in our you know in our existing kind of um, frame of what housing space looks like is a problem for Sydney, but it's not an actual problem. It's just a conceptual one. Um, I reckon we can get a million people into Wollongong and a million people into Newcastle. Um, there's my like bold prediction because look. Yes, Albion Park, yes, Port Kembla, you know, yes, Dapto aren't amazing places right now, but density brings amenity. Like, you will turn Dapto, you will turn Port Kembla into incredible, vibrant centres where people won't be commuting up to Sydney. They'll be commuting to Port Kembla to work at the port because there'll be amazing jobs there. When you when you bring the people, it's like this self sort of, um, you know, fulfilling cycle of sort of people bring money, bring amenity, bring people kind of thing. So, look... I, I'm not too worried about the fact that, like, we've got weird geography. I mean, yeah, we do, but that geography also makes this a beautiful landscape. Um, and, like, we're, we're actually, like, we can give ourselves the credit that we actually can come up with pretty novel solutions to solve for some of that stuff. Yep. So, Eamon, have you got a property Dumbo for us to wrap us up? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, when I was going to auction to buy my first house, um, and I didn't get I didn't get this house, but uh, it was a beautiful apartment in Marrickville, five minutes walk from the train station. Geez, I wish like it, not a day goes past when I don't think about that apartment and how great my life would have been if I'd lived there. Um, 
and I was in the auction. I was, I was bidding in the auction. And, um, this will give you a sign of quite how long ago it was. You know, the, the price had got to $550,000 and that was my limit. And I was up against, it was me and one other couple bidding and they had a buyer's agent and the buyer's agent was wearing his, you know, aviators. So you couldn't see his face. He had his, um, hands crossed, arms crossed across his face. You know, he was the absolute image of stoic kind of, you know, professionalism. And I was absolutely, you know, crapping my dacks as a sort of young guy, sort of like trying to get my first house. And, you know, we were going up by $10,000 increments and then $5,000 increments and then $1,000 increments. And I was like, I went to uh, 554,000. So I was a bit over my limit, but, you know, four grand, like I would have survived. And then the buyer's agent turned to me because he went one more thousand. He went 555. He turns to me, he goes, mate, I got nothing but time. I could do this all day. And I, <laughs> it just destroyed me psychologically. And I was like, nah, I'm out. That's it. I couldn't possibly compete with that. This guy can go all day and I can't. And of course he wins the bid or that couple wins the bid and they get the house. And then I like immediately afterwards had a reflection. I was like, hang on a minute. No, he couldn't. He was bidding by a thousand increments as well. Like he couldn't go all day. He was definitely over his limit. And he psyched me out because I sort of like, I got tied up in the moment. So I guess the Dumbo thing is like, auctions are designed to put you in this high pressure situation. Um, but sometimes like you need to take a step back and just breathe and be like, hang on a minute. What is the actual circumstance of this negotiation that I'm in and actually what's going on? Because probably if I'd gone an extra couple more thousand, I would have got the house because he was saying that because he was equally crap in his decks, but he was, you know, a professional who knew how to make that sound fancy instead of, you know, scared. <laughs> I love that story. Mainly, I've written a book on auction. No, I kid oh, you really? not. It's called Auction Ready. I'm, oh, I why didn't I read that? I've, why didn't I read that? I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe I hadn't written it then. I, I it actually, actually finished it and launched it in February 2020, <laughs> just when we wow. got shut down. Great timing. But I find auctions fascinating. Anyone who's listened to enough of these episodes will know. And I've just actually, funnily enough, as while we've been talking, I don't know why this is a thought that crept in the back of my head. We're we're long overdue to interview another auctioneer. We do like to interview auctioneers every now and then and get sort of lift lift the bonnet and look under the hood. But I was talking to my partner the other day about training up buyers agents to bid at auction, right? Because you know everybody's got their first auction. So as a buyer. You know, quite often a buyer, the first auction they go to is the one they're bidding at. Now, that honestly, the thing you could do to counteract that is to go and observe auctions. 100%. But as buyer's agents, I see buyer's agents who are inexperienced bidding for their clients and they wouldn't be doing that, right? Because that guy has been around the tracks. He read your body language. I can put money on it. He's worked out you're at your, your bid over your limit. He's just wanting to shut you down and that's his bit of dialogue and he did it. He did it well, right? Um, every buyer's agent should have a limit. You know, they should be instructed by the client, should have a limit, you know, so they don't have bottomless um, pockets, although I like to let people think I do as well. Um, but also, you know, we were talking about, I was talking about this with my partner and, and she said, it's like um, Eddie the Eagle, right? So for the first time you go and bid at an auction, it's like Eddie the Eagle, you know, at the top of that mountain about to ski, down and then fly up that jump it's like you, you the minute you go it is you're in it you know you don't have time to second think oh shit i haven't practiced this or i hadn't thought about that you're committed and you have to pick your pick your your pick your angle pick everything and and all the practice that you've done in your head and little jumps and that sort of stuff it all sort of comes to the fore and yeah once the auction starts you know you don't get the chance to in the middle afterwards to go back and oh yeah i could do that differently next time and improve it's a one off you know? mm -hmm. if you crash yeah. after jumping off that that jump you're done for um and that's so that's such a it's such an interesting um story i'm sorry you didn't get it you know because i would have loved it's all right i got another place which was lovely as well but yeah look i um i wish i had been a bit more um you're, you're so right like you go into this stuff and it is one of the biggest decisions you make in your life right buying a house and you're so so underprepared for it and then when you think you're finally prepared for it you get a house and then you're like well i won't use any of that information again for the next five years sort of thing like it's this crazy roller coaster <laughs> <laughs> Actually, even worse, uh, in five years or whatever time, we go, right, well, I'm going to use all that information and they don't realise that it doesn't apply because every yeah, situation is yeah. different. Totally. <laughs>
totally. <laughs> anyway, it's been a great chat. Really appreciate you coming along, Emma. And, and um, yeah, the, the, look, you know, as I said, we do talk a lot. We talk a lot about this sort of stuff here. I'd like to see more action, you know, from those who are in positions where they can take action because we, this crisis is its absolutely horrific and I, and I am horrified in the sense that we are a first world country and this is happening here and I just think it's terrible. Um, you know, that doesn't help anybody who's in that situation, me thinking it's terrible, but we just got to get action. And so if, if this little humble podcast can convince someone in some part, power, you know, some corridor of power to oh, come on, get around, do it, do something, then we've done our job. Thanks so much, Eamon. Thanks for coming Thanks for having me, team. Appreciate it. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.